It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening. I'm Cornelius Wright, and welcome to Bring It On. Bring It On is a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 15th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. And good evening. I'm Amrita Myers. It was about one month ago and ahead of President Trump's Keep America Great rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, when Black Lives Matter protesters gathered outside the venue as Trump supporters waited for the doors to open. Many rally attendees said that they hoped Mr. Trump would speak about unity. Some were looking to hear about an end to looting and rioting, while others offered responses more in tune with the nearby protests. We need to do something about the police. All lives can't matter until Black Lives Matter. Why don't you understand, one protester asked a Trump supporter. So do white people. So does white skin, a Trump supporter interjected. Donald Trump was strongly criticized for hosting his rally in Tulsa. It was 99 years ago on May 31st and June 1st of 1921 when the Tulsa Race Massacre, also called the Tulsa, Tulsa Race Riot, the Greenwood Massacre, or the Black Wall Street Massacre took place. This was when mobs of white residents many of them deputized and given weapons by city officials, attacked black residents and businesses of the Greenwood District in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It has been called the single worst incident of racial violence in American history. The massacre began during the Memorial Day weekend after 19-year-old Dick Rowland, a black shoeshine, was accused of assaulting Sarah Page, the 17-year-old white elevator operator of the nearby Drexel building. He was taken into custody. After the arrest, rumors spread through the city that Dick was to be lynched. Upon hearing reports that a mob of hundreds of white men had gathered around the jail where Roland was being kept, a group of 75 black men, some of whom were armed, arrived at the jail with the intention of helping to ensure that Dick Roland would not be lynched. The sheriff persuaded the group of black men to leave the jail assuring them that he had the situation under control. As the group of black men were leaving the premises, complying with the sheriff's request, a member of the mob of white men attempted to, dis attempted to disarm one of the black men. A shot was fired, and then according to the reports of the sheriff, all hell broke loose. To help us understand the tragic events of that historical event, and its long-lasting psychological and economic impact on the Black communities in Tulsa and throughout the United States. We have invited here tonight Professor Jewel Parker Rhodes from Arizona State University, an American best-selling novelist and a multiple award-winning educator. She is the author of Magic City, a fictional retelling of the race war of Tulsa. Joining her is Liz Mitchell, Bring It On anchor and producer of the multiple award-winning segment, Dark Past, Bright Future. Ladies, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome. 
Cornelius, I'm going to let you start off with a question for our guest this evening. Okay, well, one thing that I would love for Dr. Uh, Rhodes to start with is just a brief history for our listeners that don't know about the race riots. And, and one thing that also kind of intrigues me, and I have to admit I haven't read up on, is why weren't there other cities modeled after uh, Tulsa with its success as uh, being the Black Wall Street? There actually were cities that tried to do it. Um, there were. And in fact, in those days, there was a fantastic network of African-American newspapers. And so all across the country, Black communities knew about Deep Greenwood, knew about its success, and tried to model themselves after it. Uh, after it. So I would say that, you know, probably for each of them, there might have been different reasons having to do with job racism, racial bias, you know, but Greenwood in Oklahoma, you know, that was like the wild west. And there was a lot more, there's a lot more land, you know, and a lot more room for creating communities. Whereas if you think about an industrial town like Pittsburgh, you know, that that was well developed earlier. And so there might, it might have been much harder, you know, for the Homewood district, the Hill district to actually have the room to grow in, under oppressive conditions. And I wanted to add to that is that uh, most of the black communities throughout America were successful. And even if they weren't whole towns like that, even neighborhoods like in Indianapolis, the uh, Indiana Avenue, uh, that area was highly successful. So during segregation, as a people, we were successful in a lot of areas in America. Elizabeth is so right, and I do remember um, the Hill District in Pittsburgh. It wasn't very big, but it was extremely successful. And up until the day they decided they wanted to put in a football stadium, and then it's like, Whoop, there it goes, you know. Yeah. But, but in terms of the epitome of success, maybe then we'll say that was Deep Greenwood. Yes, yes. Ladies, one of the things that I was thinking about um, is the fact that we hear. I mean, even today, many of my own students have never heard about what happened in Tulsa. And, but they've certainly never, even if they have heard about Tulsa, they haven't heard about Rosewood, for example, yeah. right? What happened in Tulsa wasn't actually unique. Um, it's actually part of a larger history of racialized violence against um, successful black communities. And right, and you just both articulated the fact that there were successful black communities all across the country. Um, even if there weren't, uh, you know, I mean, Nicodemus, Kansas is another one that comes to mind, right? For example, that there were entire black townships all over the country, not I mean, as well as black communities within larger predominantly white cities. But they, they haven't heard of what happened to Rosewood at all um, and other communities like this. <clears throat> and and I'm, I, I guess I was wondering if both of you could maybe elaborate a little more on this history that's been really erased from the larger American narrative of, of racialized violence and the success of Black communities, uh, Black capitalism, and how it's really been obliterated from our history books. Well, I'll start off to say that um, I don't think it's, it was ever entered into the history books to be obliterated from the history books. Uh, one quote I've all, that I always say, no matter where I am, uh, we are a part of America. We are Americans. And we're left out of the family photo album. 
So, you know, it, it's it's hurtful and painful to flick through your photo album and your photo's not there. And that's the way it is for African-Americans in this country. And that's why I personally feel the need and the push, and I enjoy it, I'm passionate about it, telling our stories. Who better to tell our stories than us? We cannot depend on white America to tell our stories. They don't want to. And some of the factors are, and it includes a lot of things, fear, white men fear us, jealousy. Look what we were able to accomplish in those neighborhoods during segregation when we were suppressed by Jim Crow. Look what we were able to do. That was noted by them, even though it wasn't acknowledged out loud. It was noticeable how successful we were. And one of the things, one of the things to do is to uh, to destroy that is to say somebody touched a white woman. In most cases, that was the narrative to destroy these communities and towns: is that somebody touched a white woman, and there you go. That gave the license to destroy. Uh, what was unique to me about uh, Greenwood District is bombing from the from the ground and from the air to destroy that community. So that's what I have to say on that, Dr. Jewell. Yes. Um, Tony Morrison coined the phrase uh, master narrative. And when the history books are written by the white community, they have a master narrative that goes along with why many of them still want to have the Confederate symbols. And so telling our own stories is so vitally important. And in fact, having that legacy of, you know, intergenerational porch stories, telling stories of our survival and our, our resilience. But I learned about the Tulsa race riot probably in 1990. And it was inside a Sunday magazine, you know, the one where they would say, in the Sunday paper, uh, oh, buy this, or here's an article about this celebrity. And there was a little column of things you didn't know written by the Wallaces. And they showed the picture of the community level, just devastated, and had four paragraphs about the event. And I always like to uncover what I don't know, particularly regarding African-American history. And I went and searched for it. But as I was going and writing my book and doing all of that, the Tulsa, Oklahoma folks, they would, um, you know, welcome me, but then go, shh, not, not black folks, white folks, shh. We had the Tulsa World who had all white editors then and photographers. They'd come and take pictures of me at conferences and talk about my book, but then they never published it. They says, oh, don't worry. It's not personal, you know, but they never published it. People who wrote reviews of my book in other places in America received hate mail. And actually, the only time I ever saw the Klan was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I took my daughter there. I was there for a conference, and we were waiting to hear uh, Maya Angelou speak. And uh, the Klan were all dressed up protesting. And I laughed and said to Kelly, Kelly, mom takes you on a field trip, and you get to see the Klan. Um, and so protecting the rights of the Klan were, in fact, police officers, male and female, black and white, which was to me fascinating in terms of America's commitment to First Amendment, but I could have done without seeing, seeing the Klan. So it's a hidden history. And even today, black kids in Tulsa sometimes grow up 
go to college, then they learn about the riot and go, how come I didn't know? So it was uh, absolutely suppressed. A lot of it, and when you mentioned Rosewood, um, you know, and the riots that happened in the 1920s in Chicago, you know, the riots in Tulsa, Oklahoma, they were a part of a pattern that I think also responded to the image of strong, vital black men who were coming home from war. So we do, as Elizabeth said, have that, you know, black man is accused of touching a white woman trope, but it was made worse by the fact that the 369th Black Infantry who thought who fought hand to hand, you know, rifle to rifle with the French, marched down Harlem and the Black community celebrated them. And all of a sudden the community saw these men who were armed, efficient, and had fought for our country. And white Klansmen, white races found that very threatening. So there's, you can connect that three year period of racial riots and racial unrest, I think, to the fact that they couldn't stand to see the manhood, the glory of black men. And then of course that gets transcribed. Of course, we got to get a young boy, a child who's you know, you know, barely out of his teens, accuse him of assaulting a white woman, and now let's kill him. One thing that, um reading about the riots, a lot of people died, both black and white. And obviously there were no white people who were uh, convicted of killing any of the, the, the black member of black members, but were any black citizens charged in killing some of the white citizens? You know, actually that I don't know, Elizabeth, do you, do you know that? I don't Have know, not, I haven't heard of it. No, uh, but you know, uh, there were so many more blacks that died, uh, and then others ran and hid. Everybody left. So uh, I'm I'm sure they would have loved to co convict somebody, but with so many deaths already, and and then with uh, everybody else leaving, who who were they gonna who were they gonna nab? Oh, absolutely, and also the whole idea that if they wanted the black community subjugated. They wanted the land and all the property. They they achieved that goal. And yeah. so even though all the African-American community leave, they actually put the remaining townsfolk in tent cities. And Oklahoma has a bad winter, you know, but they put them in tent cities. And this is something that a lot of people don't know. They made the, uh, the Black folks have uh, green cards to go work down for the white employers, you know? So we hear about, you know, the Asian-American green cards, but Tulsa residents had green cards that enabled them to work. And the Red Cross of America actually said, let us help you. And black communities all over the United States said, oh, we gotta help you. And the white citizens of Tulsa said, oh, that's okay, they don't need any help. We got it, we have it under, under control. So they had subjugated them so, so badly and they were so in control of the narrative. I don't think they felt the need to arrest anybody. They destroyed you know, thousands of lives of a community. I would also note that John Hope Franklin, who's the great, great African-American historian, he was a little boy and he would tell tales of being hiding underneath the bed during the riot. And I think that that's interesting that a child who was going to be the historian committed to telling the African-American narrative, you know, perhaps he was, in fact, had the catalyst to become that way because of what he experienced in Deep Greenwood. I think it's really important that we understand how long this really has been going on because 
Um, I was thinking about what Ida B. Wells wrote about um, in Memphis when she saw her friend Thomas Moss lynched because he and his you know, friends had the nerve to set up a grocery store and they were successful because they went into competition directly against white men who opened a grocery store. And for no other reason than the fact that they were successful, they were attacked and targeted and lynched, right? And she spoke out on the record and said, this is a bald-faced lie that black men are attacking white women. It's, that's not why black men are being you know, lynched. That's the excuse that's being used, but really it's because black men are successful. They're voting, they're gaining property, they're, they're becoming business owners, and that's why they're being targeted. And then of course, Professor Rhodes, you made the point that, you know, fast forward, you know, there was there were riots in Atlanta, there were riots in Wilmington, but then 1919, when men come home from war, the Harlem Hellfighters that you referenced, right, the 369th, that summer is known as Red Summer because there are riots all over the country because black men are coming home in uniform and white people absolutely cannot stand the sight of black men in uniform. How dare you wear the uniform of the nation? These are men who have actually been cited and given medallions by the French government and others for bravery, right? And they come home to their own country to find out that nothing has changed. And so their red summer, right? Riots all over the country. What I want to ask you is this question, both of you, what is the difference if we change the language, if we stop using the language of riot, right? And begin using the terminology massacre, because riot implies something very different than the language massacre. And even in Tulsa, we go back and forth between the Tulsa race riot versus the Tulsa or the Greenwood massacre. And when I, when I talk in my classes, I, I ask them to think very carefully about the power of words and the power of language. Riot has a very different, it brings up a very different image or a very different sort of visceral response in a person's mind and body than, um, than ma massacre versus riot. So I, I would like both of you to sort of talk about that a little bit because we are in the midst right now in the summer of 2020 of national political uprisings and protests across the country, uh, you know, in the middle of uh, Black Lives Matter. And, and, and what we're seeing what's happening from, from DC to Portland, from Louis, you know, from Louisville to Minneapolis, over 60 days of uprising and protests. What does it mean to say riot versus massacre in the context not only of Tulsa and Greenwood, but what's happening today? I agree. Can I be real quick for a minute, Elizabeth? Let you go ahead. Let me yeah. be real quick. Please, ladies, I, for those of you who are just, just tuning in now, I want to do a station identification. You are listening to Professor Jewel Rhodes from Arizona State University and Liz Mitchell, who is a regular contributor to Bring It On. We're talking about the Tulsa massacre um, and we're uh, and, and sort of fleshing this out and connecting it to what's happening today to amazing African-American women who I'm so incredibly um, honored and respected to be talking with um, this evening on Bring It On. I just, for those of you who are just tuning in, I just want to introduce, reintroduce these, these fabulous, fabulous black women to you this evening. Um, and, and just make sure that, uh, you know, that, that you know who we're talking to if you're just tuning in tonight. And so I will, I'll let you to, to okay. decide. I'm, I'm, 
for answering the question, I'm going to let Elizabeth take the bulk of it. And I just, I just want to say that your, your point is great. And actually, um, you know, it's like, even for, even for me who is involved in rewriting narratives, because I started back in the nineties, you know, and that the Tulsa race riot and the whole generations of that, that even I am blindsided by the language and I will never use riot again. And when my book is reissued, I will say massacre. So I actually thank the young people today and thank the fact that a hundred years later, that even I, with my, my deep commitment, I still have a lot to learn. It was not a riot. It was a massacre. I'll never say that word riot again. Elizabeth, take it away, girl. <laughs> well, I was going to say, uh, you're right uh, about the, the use of words. Um, my husband has an uncle that uh, he's, he's been dead for about 15 years, maybe more. And years ago, he would say, isn't it interesting that if Indians win a war, it's called a massacre. If whites win the war, it's called a war. So you're right about the use of words and the power that they have. Uh, a lot of riots of where we have been killed is a massacre. And so we do have to be conscious of, of how we're using it. And also, uh, we have to make the majority use the right words too and correct them. It seems we're at the point, we're always going to have to correct them and teach them. And I know you get tired of teaching them because I say, we've been here over 400 years and you don't know us. We know all about you. We've had to, to survive. You need to start learning about us. You need to know what, uh, what offends me. Uh, and you need to know how you've destroyed things, but yet we still stand and with our heads held high. And so I'm sure that is intimidating to you, especially to have, uh, it's intimidating to talk to a strong black woman. And it's intimidating to even speak to a black man, no matter, no matter what. Uh, my husband has had the experience of people saying, I'm afraid of you. Now he's just like, he's like uh, Clarence Boone a teddy bear kind of guy, a nice guy. And my husband said, well, what are you afraid of? What have I done? Well, even your gray hair scares me. Just everything about you is frightening. You're just standing there, your height, just how you carry yourself. And I thought, oh my, at least they said it. They said what the fear is. So uh, it is a learning time for them. And whether we want to be the teachers or not, we're going to have to. It's and I'm so proud of the youth. Uh, you know, in the 60s, you saw more black youth. Now you're seeing a lot of white youth. I think that through integration, that they've grown up with blacks and now they know and they're saying, you're not going to treat my friend or my children. A lot of people now have biracial children and they're not going to put up with it. So I'm so proud of the youth out there marching. Let's keep marching and making those changes. Go ahead, Elizabeth. I wanted to 
add well, along with you, what you said was all just so brilliant, um, that of course it, it has to be a massacre if you also look at the use of police and governmental power. And it's basically something that Trump is echo echoing today. Who else had airplanes that they could drop dynamite down from, from the air and destroy that town? Um, that's only happened a couple times in our history in terms of black community. So you don't bring, you know, bombs to a so-called riot, you know, that's, that's, that's a, a massacre. Also in terms of the systemic racism, the systemic police abuse, you know, Amirita, you talked about, Amirita, you talked about the, um, you know, the economic and capitalistic success. And I wanna give a shout out for all the farmers who, you know, right after reconstruction, they, they had land or, you know, they started, you know, trying to work the land and started building up their businesses then. And actually our governmental systems and police would just go in and arrest them and say, you're, you're out of here. So that, so it's not just, just capitalism as in the industrial city center, but also the house, you know, in the in the South, the agricultural own and land ownership of black people was actually devastated. The other thing is to remember that when we talk about migration, we go from, you know, we talk about South to North and South to Southeast and people really didn't pay much attention to the West. And actually I think it was motivated by the sense that there's so much land out there that maybe I can get a piece where we won't have the sheriff in Alabama come and steal it and take it away from me, you know? <laughs> or, and, and so it's, it, so that was why it was called in for some, on the promised land, that there was there was an openness there, you know, but Tulsa was anti-union, anti-Jewish, anti-Native American, anti-Black. They were anti-anti-everything, -ev and the, the promise was broken. You know, one thing is we're looking at the past to kind of navigate the future as we see how justice is about to hopefully change in this country. I look back, uh, I think it was in 1921 that Governor Keating uh, enacted the Tulsa Race Riot Reconciliation Act. Well, I guess we need to change the name of that after this conversation. We need to uh, contact them on that. But in looking at that, one thing that, that, that always fascinates me, they're so willing to, well, not even willing to, but they will acknowledge some of their past sins. But when it comes to a monetary reparation, they seem to be very, 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 very quick to say, hell no. Can you elaborate a little bit? I mean, you take down the Black Wall Street. I mean, obviously there should have been reparations, but as we look forward in this country, do you think there's ever gonna be a day that they're gonna give up off of some of their gold? <laughs> Doctor, I'll let you answer that one first. <laughs> I got my, my again a short answer. I think it's no. I think it's no. You know, um, the other day I I my my knees buckle when I'm reading about uh, Representative Tom Cotton, who's against the 1619 New York Times project, which they want to put in schools, and some schools are adopting this a curriculum that starts with the founding of America with the first slave that came here and link the slave, I know the 1619 project and link slavery to, you know, everything that happened in terms of building this country of ours, right? Uh, all in all, all in the, all in the white narrative's mind in a good way. But anyway, Senator Representative Cotton said um, he wants to take away funding from schools who want to teach that. And he said, as our founding fathers realized, slavery was just a necessary evil. 
And to have in 2020 someone still saying slavery was a necessary evil means that, you know, I don't think people like that are going to be woke ever. Um, and that sense of necessary evil for your capitalism, for your nation building, but not for us, I think in a way that that's not going to change. Evidence that I would cite would just be the inequity that has grown over and over. People don't even want to be equitable when it comes to, you know, uh, people within their, their own racial group, you know, no, you be poor and I'll be rich. I'm the 1%. You know, so it's like this whole idea that all of a sudden people who've been suppressed economically for 400 years that they're going to say oh i'm going to help you i just i just i just don't believe it i really i really i'm sorry to say that but i really don't and i have to agree with you i don't believe it's going to happen uh and we know everybody else has received reparations uh for what was done to them personally i would like to see free education um i don't the richest country in the world why not Mm -hmm. And I'd like to see the HBCUs get some money. And I think they're extremely important, extremely important. And if if they decide to do anything, which I, I doubt it, as I don't think I'll be around to see it. Just educate the youth free for nothing is my favorite. Free for nothing. They should, you know, your youth and educating the youth is is our greatest natural resource. So put some money behind that. And that's what, that's how you can repay me. Ab absolutely. And I was also going to add, though, that there are some people who have done statistical and sociological studies saying we have a great generation of Black youth that are getting their degrees, but because of the long-term economic discrimination, they're taking out more loans. And so that, they're, so that they are, even though they are highly educated, that their choices for how to use their education are, are limited. Or the fact that, you know, that they have this loan burden that prevents them from taking chances are also connections back home, you know, because, you know, Black youth is going to take care of all his loved ones, you know, whether it's his brother, his sister, his grandmother, what have you. And so, again, it gets at that. I do think education is not enough. I think it, it is a great start, but we still need to find some way so that, you know, the average Black family doesn't have $10,000 and the average white family has $100,000. And that also gets into, you know, housing segregation and how the federal government actually for the first planned suburban community said, we'll lend you money in Levittown, Maryland, only if you agree not to like have blacks come in and buy, buy homes. So that whole sort of wave of keeping suburbia white locked out our community from home ownership. So I would also maybe say education and give every family a down payment to buy a home because that is a real wealth builder in, a, in America. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> Do it, America. Do it. Do it, America. <laughs> I, I really appreciate with you what you both just said about the different ways to envision reparations. I really appreciate Cornelius's question too because when we think about reparations, people immediately just think about a one-time check in the mail. And one of the things that, you know, we've been thinking about, and this generation has been thinking about a lot, is this younger generation, is that, that reparations needs to be reconceived. And that, you know, free college education is incredibly important. But because of redlining, which Professor Rhodes, you just brought up, 
and how that locked Black America out of being able to build equity and build wealth over generations, right? That was a problem. So being able to establish giving people down payments for homes so that they can actually start to build generational wealth, right, is really, really important, right? Because we know that Black families have far less wealth, right, than white families do. So, but I'm, I also think that being able to give Black families access to healthcare, right? That we need oh, to yes. think about, oh, yes. we need to be able to think about reparations in a very, very different way. It's not just a one-time check. It's about, it's about healthcare. It's about education. It's about, it's about mortgages. Exactly. I, I'm, I'm so, I'm so appreciative, but going back to Cornelius's question about, you know, when are they going to give up to their, their gold? I don't really know. I mean, have we actually even gotten to a point where we can talk about reparations when do you think that we've actually gotten to a point where the nation has even acknowledged its sins because reparation requires truth telling first right because if you look at south africa yes. if you look at if you look at australia if you look at canada all of these countries that are beginning the, or have begun the process of what truth and reconciliation commissions and begun the process of trying to go through healing. It's not that they've arrived at the end because I don't know if there's ever an end, but it's a journey, it's a process, right? You have to, you have to begin with truth. You have to begin with hearing the truth and acknowledging that there were sins and harms done. Have we, have we even, be, I mean, have we even started that process and how do we begin? How do we well, begin that? We just had a senator last week, as uh, Dr. Rhodes mentioned, that said slavery was a necessary evil. Oh, I know. I read all about Tom. I, I read all about you know, Tom Cotton. So I guess maybe that might be a start to where they're actually even acknowledging that it was an evil. I mean, for them to even say that is okay. kind of a start. Never heard him say it before. But I, I agree with you. Our educational system with the 1619 Project, you can see the, the, the havoc that that's uh, causing with some people that they don't want the truth to come out even today. So that, that's a very good point. And uh, I, I would love to hear uh, Liz and Dr. Rhodes comment on that also. I think we're just still at the start of our journey. I think remember um, being, well, I remember also being part of, you know, women's, the suffragette vote you know women's rights and stuff like that it, it's and it's an ongoing process because they're still you know having having issues so i still think we're in the consciousness raising stage you know uh that people are going like oh um and actually i think the generations under well over 35 or 40 maybe it's sort of like it's hard, might be harder for them but i think the young people as, as liz said the young people will provide the hope and i think that it it, so it won't happen in my lifetime, but I do believe that we might have reconciliation and conversations with kids who have grown up with less baggage than their forefathers, but only if we can keep having the consciousness of racism and racial bias in, in our culture. Schools don't teach uh, sometimes slavery more. They certainly don't teach Reconstruction. And I traveled the country with my book on, on Ghost Boys, and I was in Boston and um, the black students had never even heard of Emmett Till, you know? Uh, yes, they had not, no, they had not heard of Emmett Till. And this one young gentleman followed me out of the, um, out of the building 
and 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 said to me, wait, 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 wait. He says, you mean this is a pattern? Because I was connecting Trayvon to Mir to Emmett. And he says, you mean this is a pattern? And I said, yes, it's a pattern. And he said, oh, I thought it was me. So reconciliation means change in terms of, you know, white folks' perspectives and minds. They control our educational system so that we also are having generations of African-Americans who might not even see the, the need in some ways for the ongoing reconciliation. Do you know what I mean? So it's kind of like truth telling in terms of historical narratives have to be open. And so we have to bear witness and wait for that generation like that. little. And I met a father uh, who had a two-year-old, a black man, 26 years old. He had never heard of Emmett Till. So we need all kinds of education, but not just on one side, but on all sides, because we can't demand what we're owed if we have this whole, if we succumb to the system that tries to erase our history. And that's what they're doing. So we need to get both sides right. I agree with you on that. In one of the schools that I had prepared their Black History program, I had included Emmett Till. And what I asked the students is to do a report on, and I had a list that they could choose from. And I said, have your parents, and this was to teach the parents, come to the school and you with your parents, one or both, give your report. Because this is going to be a family thing. And the family um, that had Emmett Till was so angry at me that I would have their child to study about a murder. And, and they were just irate and went to the principal. It went all the way up that Liz Mitchell had said and had, had put that name out there for them to learn about in the tale. So on, on some things, I know there's a pushback. Nobody wants to hear that a youth was murdered like that. Um, I, it, it seems like we, there's a protection system in with white youth uh, not to hear the horrific things that have happened to us. And maybe, I don't know, maybe that's one of the many reasons why things are being told. Really good point, Liz. You know, the whole idea of the, of the 20th century and the sheltering our kids and keeping their innocence and their helicopter parents were actually maybe then having more educational pair to control over what kids can be exposed to. Um, I do know, like in terms of writing my middle grade novels, I'm always taking on stuff that it's like, whoa, you're, you know, you're the first 9-11 for middle graders, you know, and a till for middle graders. Whoa. Um, mm -hmm. And I've had, and I've had pushback, but you're right. I remember growing up and as a black child, I saw Emmett's body in his casket, those images, um, for multiple, multiple years, all the time, because my folks wanted me to know. And they said, watch this TV, read Ebony, read Jet. And I saw those pictures and I wasn't, I wasn't shielded because it was a matter of survival. So we need to get it so that for white folks, it too is a matter of survival for the future generations, that their kids know all the, all the horrible truths because otherwise they'll go blindly into, into saying, oh, I didn't know that. There's a study where they have black pictures of, of, say, a black kid on the floor and a white kid standing over them and white middle schoolers, you know, like, you know, in, you know, the Midwest said, oh, that white person's helping that black student. Reverse it, put the white kid on the floor and the black 
kid up above. And then they'll say, oh, that person's trying to push them down. That black student is trying to help them. And actually then they called on the parents, you know, who were all white, who all swore that they believed in racial equity and they would never ever, you know, uh, have their kids wanted to treat somebody, you know, un unequally. And so the question was, where did they get that racism from? You know, and that comes from all those makers of our culture, media, print, educational, who have, have somehow managed by not telling the truth, by, by shielding their kids, um, expose their own kids to cultural, kind of a, acculturation that kills and sustains black, that kills and doesn't sustain black people, rather than teaching them to be critical thinkers, to rebel and to revolt and to think. And I think on both sides, black kids need to know that they have a right, a right, to, to have justice do, you know? And white kids need to have a right to know that their forefathers um, did unjust things. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think the youth have a lot of work cut out for them because this racism is entrenched in all areas of life, in all areas. So um, I wish them the best and I, I figured that, you know, look how long it took to get where we are now. Things move too slowly for me. And uh, <laughs> so, but I really would uh, like to see things get to where I hope they will be. I, I doubt if I will, but I think, the, like I said, the youth got a lot of work to do because uh, you brought up, you know, housing and health and in just all areas. And it's just so deeply entrenched and has been for years. Yeah. If you're just tuning into the show, you're listening to Bring It On. And tonight we have with us Arizona State University professor Jewel Rhodes and Bring It On contributor Liz Mitchell. We're talking, well, we've been having a really free ranging discussion. We started talking about the Tulsa Greenwood massacre and we've been connecting it to a lot of different things about what's happening in the country today and where we need to go from here in terms of racial reconciliation and healing. It's been an amazing conversation and we're gonna continue the conversation in the 15 minutes that we have remaining to us this evening um, as we continue to talk about the current administration, the things that are happening politically in the nation today, locally as well as nationally. Ladies, we thank you for the wonderful, rich conversation that you've opened up for us this evening. As I was listening, Listening to you, I was thinking to myself, uh, you know, we've, you know, we've been talking a lot about education, and there's so many different ways to educate our young people, and both of you are actually um, creative artists in different ways. Liz does a lot of work with theater and film. Um, Professor Rhodes, you do a lot of work. Uh, you're, you know, you're a fiction writer. Uh, you're a novelist. And um, you know, I'm a history professor, but we we all educate, right, in in different ways. And there's different ways to reach our young people. Um, not everyone, you know, learns the same way. And we can also educate adults, right, through theater, through fiction, through history. And I guess that's I would love to hear you both talk about some of the ways that you've used your different projects, your, your novels, your, your theater work, your films, et cetera, to reach these multiple audiences, because not everyone's gonna come into the classroom. Not everyone is going to take a university or college course. Um, and I think that the kinds of work that you're doing 
um, the public-facing work that you do has the capacity to really reach broad audiences and to educate white, Black, Latinx, Asian American uh, audiences. And so, so this is really something that I hope that you can talk to us a little bit about and, and talk uh, and, and really talk to our listeners about how we can educate people because Liz said something at the beginning of the show that's really important, right? African-American history is first and foremost American history. Yes, it is. And so how do we educate all people in this country about American history using these different tools, using creative artistic tools? Right. Liz, I want to hear from you, girl. I love theater. <laughs> well, I've always been passionate about African-American history. Uh, and so on my own, I learned as much as I could. I'm, it's still a process. I'm still learning. Um, I asked when I was 19 years old, I asked an elderly white man, why was he a racist? Why would he hate why did he hate me? And why did he hate black people? And he said, our people, answer him because I didn't know. So I set out, I to do is learn all about the minorities of this country. And I'll start with African-Americans and go with Japanese-Americans and so forth and so forth. Well, I don't mind telling you, God has blessed me. I'm 67 years old. I was 19 then. I'm still learning about African-Americans. I haven't got the chance to learn about the other minorities. So it's important for me to share what I know. And after retiring, I've just put forth all my energy into that. And um, with that being said, uh, I was invited to uh, help write a play for Indiana's Bicentennial. We figured that we would be left out, again, out of that photo album, which is true. So we produced a play talking about African-American untold stories or little-known stories in the state of Indiana. And then we had a group that they want to videotape everything we do. So they came out and videotape. And we told stories of uh, what happened here locally and what's happened in the state. And just like you said, Dr. Rose, people will go, I didn't know that. Yeah. I, I had no clue that uh, experiments was done on 10 black kids in the state of Indiana, the radiation. Uh, we didn't know that, that we, you know, that we blasted these kids and they all had died from cancer and just different stories. They didn't know about Major Taylor, who was uh, an international uh, 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 bicyclist an well-known athlete in the nation and not only the nation, the world. So, you know, we have to educate these people and we have to educate kids. For me, if I'm asked to come, if I'm available, I'm coming. Most black people won't stop in Martinsville here in Indiana. I've gone to Martinsville schools. Uh, I, I just, uh, no, no, nothing intimidates me, so I'm going to go. So that's how I spread the word, and we give out free tickets to the youth to come to our plays. I produced a documentary. I'm now working on the second documentary and in the process of writing our third play. And again, uh, if necessary, we, we, uh, we talk about it. We go out to schools. We travel. Uh, you brought up Emmett Till. When I was learning about Emmett Till, I got my car, and I made a list of all the things I wanted to see. 
So I drove to where the incident happened, where Emmett Till was murdered. Which is Money, Mississippi. Money, Mississippi. Yeah, stop stop by uh, 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 Johnson's graveyard, the musician. Uh, I went to where uh, uh, different things that I've read about. I got my car to drive so I could see for myself what what had happened and get and talk to different people. Uh, I went to Selma when they were do, filming it, Selma. Didn't know it, just happened to be there. And I ran into a lady that said, you know, nobody's mentioned the smell of blood that day. Mm-hmm. She was years old. She said, around the corner, the first thing I smelled was blood. That had not been mentioned. So you learn different things by going. This, this country's big and wide open and we got cars little bit gas, get in there and go go find out. I think to answer your question, the research is extraordinarily important to uncover these narratives. Um, and like Liz, um, it, I wrote all the time, but I didn't know black people wrote books until I was 19 years old, a junior in college and went into the library, right? And I switched my major actually from theater to English the very next day. And here's an interesting fact. When I grew up, they always said, oh, you're so smart. You should be a secretary. And actually, when I applied to college, I didn't get in. Um, My scores weren't high enough. And so I went for theater um, and then transferred later, which is really interesting because then I, you know, I've been, I've been, I'm not married, but I've been married for a long time, but I've been educated for a lot of years, eight years of graduate, graduate school and, you know, and, uh, obviously quite smart, but I had to overcome that educational disadvantage. But in all my novels, I try to uncover African-American history. In my first novel, Voodoo Dreams, I talked about, I wanted to know why was it that Black voodoo traditions, African diasporic traditions had such negative reactions and how did that happen? And I became involved in Marie Laveau. And then I did the Tulsa Race Massacre. Then I did Douglas's Women about his wife and mistress. And now for youth, I'm doing the same. So I'm telling them, well, you know, you think Ariel so special that mermaid gave up her voice her language everything you know were mommy wata those were the african water goddesses who traveled beside slave ships to take care of their people you know and and you need to know that story too so i'm trying to to change the narrative and educate and also change show kids like even my book about emmett till and and Tremere Rice and Trayvon being murdered, ghost boys, I make a comparison to Peter Pan. And so white society says, Peter Pan's great. He never grew up. Isn't he wonderful? At the same time, they're killing young men of color who don't, who would give anything to have a chance to grow up. But fundamentally, and I'll, I'll wrap this up, it's about bearing witness that all of us have power to bear witness, to tell stories. And it's a human, basic human ability to speak truth to power, whether it be through art or sculpture or music or st- storytelling, and that we all have to make sure that we have, or you have the self-confidence to do that, to express themselves and not to be afraid of their voice. I like to say that the greatest civil right is for somebody to stand tall and be able to say, I am, I am. And if you're securing yourself, you don't feel the need to step on somebody else or to put your foot on their on their neck. You are content with who you are. And that takes education and it takes that sense that your voice matters. So speak truth to power. And that's what I've been trying to do for um, I'm published 16 books and I have three other books under contract, you know. Um, so I do my acting now, Liz. 
uh, through my fiction, my fiction writing. But I have done a play on Voodoo Dreams uh, and that power. And there are some filmmakers who've asked me to do some work for them. And I think we're moving ahead. To have Watchmen have the Tulsa Race Massacre in their first episode, I think that that's a really good sign. Mm-hmm. And going back, as we have a couple of minutes left, back to Tulsa. Where are we in Tulsa today? How is the city with race relations? Um, can you give us a brief update? Um, Tulsa, I think, is getting ready for its 100th anniversary. I think the Black community is very, very proud of the Greenwood Center and very, very proud of their, their history. But they still have the lingering wound that they cannot find the mass graves. Everybody knows um, that, you know, over 300 people were buried. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think until they find that, they won't have reconciliation. They had a recent excavation of one cemetery and it was, you know, it didn't, it wasn't fruitful in terms of history. So I'm hoping that by the 100th anniversary where they'll have their great celebration, the University of Oklahoma is doing a special edition articles and and people speaking to, you know, the race massacre. Um, But um, they will be maybe on their way to healing when they're able to bury and honor the babies and have that sort of visible, visible visceral proof that what happened was unjust and bear witness to the world. Are there still plenty of people alive who were... Um, There's like maybe there? a, a handful and okay. they're, they're go, and they're going they're going fast, but there there are people that are that are still alive who still remember, and they are in their seventies and eighties. Um, so it it'll be clearly within another maybe twenty five thirty years, um, there won't be any first generation survivors left. Okay. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, and and uh, I'm gonna have to definitely add the book Magic City to my reading list. So Liz, I'm going to need you, uh, if you could repeat your response. Uh, when you had started out talking about the the gentleman that you had met, that you asked, why don't you like me? Uh, your response, actually, we didn't catch it because your audio failed for just a few seconds. So, so could you tell us what his response was to you when you asked him, why don't you like me? He said that whites made this country the way it is and that blacks and other minorities are reaping the benefits of what they've done. Thank you so much. Because I didn't know. And that set me on a lifelong journey of learning. I appreciate that. Thank you for clarifying. That helps tremendously. Um, I want to close out with one final question to both of you, which is your, uh, your opinions on the president's choice of Tulsa for his rally. I, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> In fact, I just... I can't believe he's the president. So I'll uh, start with that. I just, <laughs> yeah, it's, like I said, if you don't know history and you don't know anything, and if you don't read and you don't want to know, that's what you end up with, somebody like that. So hopefully we can change things. I just, I want America to go out and vote. Vote, vote, vote. I believe, um, I'm, I'm more cynical I find it hard to believe that somebody did not know about the Tulsa massacre. You know, I just, I really do. And that there are, I, well, I think that you can be really racist, you can be white supremacist, and you can be very, very smart. And somebody 
maybe put one over on everybody else, but somebody knew. And they had an obligation to inform the president. And maybe he still would have done what he did otherwise, you know, anyway, you know, but I would have I would have been interested in him in having that choice. I know what his he probably would have done it anyway. <laughs> but I believe somebody somebody knew. But claiming ignorance of history is not a is not an excuse. We will we would tell our children, you know, you're taking a test or and you say you don't know, that's not good enough. That's not how we achieve excellence. So I don't understand how our president could have the very best people and all of them can claim including him I didn't know I didn't know that um the ignorance is 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 astounding he does have a lot of advisors correct yeah you, you would think so you would think yeah you would think well, we want to thank our guest, American best-selling novelist and multiple award-winning educator Professor Jewel Parker Rhodes, author of Magic City, a fictional retelling of the race massacre of Tulsa, and Liz Mitchell, bring it on anchor and producer of the multiple award-winning segment, Dark Past, Bright Future, for joining us this evening to help us understand the tragic events surrounding the Tulsa race massacre and its long-lasting psychological and economic impact on the Black communities in Tulsa and throughout the United States. Bring It On is a multiple award-winning one-hour weekly public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting African-American communities, beginning with South Central Indiana. Bring It On seeks to facilitate open and constructive dialogue among African-Americans and the communities they reside in. Bring It On airs on Monday evenings at 6 p.m. on WFHB 91.3 and 98.1 FM. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Listen live or download a podcast of the show at www.wfhb.org. Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone, with help from the WFHB News Department Director, Cade Young. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam. Graphic promotional illustrations provided by William Hosea, with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Cornelius Wright. And I'm, I'm, and I'm Amrita Myers. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.